Lord, this evening as we are preparing our hearts and our minds to hear from you, we're reminded that there are churches like this all over the world that gather together week in and week out to hear from your Holy Spirit. Lord, I would pray for the people of this church. I know that each one of us comes with a history, that some of us have had good times and some of us have had bad times. We've had all kinds of difficulties, maybe financially or health or relationally, or for some it could be the greatest weeks of their life. It could be wonderful times. But each one of us desires to hear from you, desires to know that we're loved by you and connected to you in your word and in salvation. So, Father, I would pray that you would bring that to us as a church. I pray that also for other churches. I think this evening of uh, Cheyenne Alliance Church and Pastor Jason Taylor and the ministry that he has there. Lord, I pray that you would speak to his people through your word, that you would grow that church and encourage the believers there, that they would love to hear the word and that the word would change them. Uh, Father, we're thankful for the various missions organizations that we get to be a part of. I think of a Life Choice Pregnancy Care Center, uh, what a powerful ministry that they have, not just uh, their obvious ministry, and that is that they, they save the lives of children, uh, Lord, but beyond that, I've seen them save the souls of parents as well. So thankful that we can be a part of that in just a very simple way, uh, by praying for them and uh, offering some financial provision, having Tom on their board, uh, but Lord, just a, a blessing as an organization. We want to continue to see them have success, so we would pray against any legislative measures that might stop them or groups like them from doing the work that they do. Uh, we would pray, Lord, for financial provision and wisdom for them. Lord, we're thank- thankful for our own ministries here. I uh, think of our men's ministry and just the years of gathering together, the years of uh, conferences and the fellowship and fun that they've had and the various things that they do. Uh, Lord, I would pray for the continued success of that ministry. I thank you for Chris Heddens and others that have invested in it and invested in the guys in this church. Uh, Lord, I would pray as well for uh, maybe men in our church who just don't feel connected to other believers, who need to have that encouragement and edification, who need to have a strong fellowship with other men. Uh, Lord, that you would uh, find a connection there, that there would be friendships, that there would be opportunities to grow through that. Uh, Lord, that they would just ask the question on how they can get involved. And then for us tonight, as we're preparing to be in Matthew 17, I would ask that you would just uh, clarify And bring it all together for us that we could walk out of here today knowing uh, that we heard from you, Lord, in your word. That your Holy Spirit would be speaking to each one of us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, we are in Matthew chapter 17. We're uh, continuing this journey, this five-year journey of working our way uh, chapter by chapter through the Bible in hopes of, or through the New Testament in hopes of doing it a little quicker this time. Uh, one chapter a week has its advantages and its disadvantages. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and someone will bring one to you so you can follow along with us there. But uh, uh, going chapter by chapter has its advantages and disadvantages. One advantage is it goes much quicker uh, and you can oftentimes see connections chapter to chapter that you won't see if you're just focusing in on one little section. But uh, one of those difficulties that we have sometimes going chapter by chapter is it feels like uh, the, the sections don't always connect to one another within a chapter, and so sometimes that's a little difficult, and I'll be honest with you, as I'm preparing these a, a week at a time, uh, seeing those connections within a chapter is what I spend the most amount of time on, and how, is I can, how can I take these multiple stories in one chapter and try to tie them all together? Uh, this week was harder than most. It feels like uh, three completely unrelated stories uh, set together in this chapter, Uh, and uh, maybe that's the way it was intended, but uh, thankfully, uh, I prayed about it all week. I studied it out, and I was was struggling with that, but then this morning, uh, as I was sitting at the kitchen table rereading the passage, it all just became clearer to me anyway uh, how these three connect, so let me go ahead and give you my outline. I don't normally do that because I I don't get excited about outlines in a teaching format, Uh, but I do think it'll help kind of see the connections, so uh, it's really kind of three stories, uh, but in between those three stories, we have these reminders from Jesus about the death and resurrection uh, of, of the Son of Man, he says. The Son of Man is going to suffer, he's going to die, and he's going to be raised again. And so we're seeing these kind of as hinges into the, each story. Uh, what I want us to recognize in that is, in, in, in addition to the individual things happening in a chapter, there's also this thread or this theme of Jesus trying to prepare his disciples for his ultimate death and resurrection, for the bringing uh, forward of the gospel uh, to the rest of the world. So we kind of have that playing out. Uh, but so we have now these three stories, the transfiguration, where God says, 
this is my beloved son. And then we'll have this desperate man praying for the healing of his lunatic son where God's beloved son will come and bring healing and peace to this desperate man. And then lastly, in that last section there, uh, we'll see that, the, God, that uh, the king's son, Jesus the king's son, is actually exempt from paying the temple tax because he's the son of the king. But that theme of son kind of follows through all those as well. So we'll kind of look through it a piece at a time and see if we can gather some good stuff out of here. We'll pick it up in chapter 17. Uh, it says this, Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his garments became white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. So it says this is six days later. This is uh, after this great moment where Peter confessed Jesus was the Christ. Jesus, at that point in chapter 16, tells the disciples again that uh, that will be the first time, actually, but we're going to see it three times total in this section here. Uh, Jesus is going to tell his disciples, hey, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, and I'm going to be raised from the dead. At which time, Peter, who just had this amazing confession of faith in Jesus Christ, says, no, Lord. It says he rebukes Jesus and says, no, Lord. And so Jesus responds to Peter by saying, Satan, get behind me. Uh, you're going to see that struggle kind of all throughout these that the disciples are trying to figure out how it is they're supposed to respond to this thing that Jesus is telling them. And so now Jesus brings them up on a mountain. And uh, if Peter is anything like me, he's probably thinking to himself, he's going to leave me here. He's done with me. He's had enough of me. <laughs> this, is a, this is some sort of trick. Um, uh, but anyway, that's not what's happening. In fact, Jesus is bringing Peter, James, and John to this really special moment. Uh, we never know uh, in Scripture, it doesn't tell us specifically why these three were there. Uh, there's no real mention of that. We just understand that three of the disciples went and nine didn't. Uh, we do see that James and John and Peter are oftentimes grouped together as a group of disciples. Uh, it could be that Jesus uh, really uh, wanted to show them something great. It could be that they were the remedial class and they couldn't be trusted by themselves. And so they had to go with Jesus wherever he went, uh, just like I had to in second grade when my teacher was so annoyed by me uh, talking in class that she uh, moved my desk right up against her desk. And then she had to move my desk again because I kept talking to her and it was too distracting and she wasn't able to teach. So I had to be moved again. Uh, but kind of in that same sense, you know, I, I'm not sure which one of these is happening here, but whichever it is, they get to see something that's it's absolutely amazing. They get to see what we know as the transfiguration of Jesus. Uh, it, it just means that he's going to change in his appearance. There's going to be a change there. Kind of like back in the day, we used to have toys and they still have them, but called Transformers. You know, transformers more than meets the eye, right? And it was like this car, and then you could turn it into a robot, and it was kind of cool. Well, there's a change in Jesus here. His appearance is going to change before them, uh, and what's going to happen is it says his face shone like the sun. And, and this is probably a weird way to look at it, but to me it's almost as if his, his skin has come off and his godness is showing through now. That's kind of the way I'm envisioning it. I'm, not, I'm sure that's not exactly what happened. His skin didn't come off. But just, for, just it's like his godness is showing through here. In this case, as he begins to shine like the sun. And then his garments become white as snow. And in the midst of this amazing moment where Jesus physically looks different now, we also have two guys appear on the scene. One of them is Moses. One of them is Elijah. And they're having a conversation with one another. And that in and of itself is impressive because both of those guys are dead. So this is kind of a, a powerful moment. Peter and James and John are seeing something amazing here, something powerful. And these guys are having this conversation. Now, I wish we knew what they were talking about, but we don't because Peter's going to pipe up and have something to say in this. Because if you're with, in a room with Jesus and Moses and Elijah, whatever you have to say is probably the important thing, right? 
That's kind of the scenario here. Now, these guys actually have some interesting connections. If you think about Moses and Elijah and who they represent and what they do uh, in their ministries, it's kind of a, a neat setup here. Uh, think of it in these terms. Moses gave us the, the books of the law in the Old Testament, those first five books. Elijah is one of the prophets and, and considered one of the great prophets of the Old Testament. So they have that connection there. Uh, both of them have strange ends to their life. Uh, there's kind of a connection there that uh, I don't know exactly what it means, but I just think there's an interesting connection there with Moses and Elijah both having kind of a strange death scene in the Bible, if you want to call it that, uh, where Moses kind of goes up onto a mountain and then he's, it's almost like he's lost to history at that point. They don't know where his body is. You'll see later on that there'll be a dispute in the book of Jude over the body of Moses. And so the, Michael, the archangel, is arguing with Satan over the body of Moses. So kind of just this weird end to his life. And then Elijah like just gets into a chariot and takes off into heaven. Like this is crazy stuff, right? This isn't stuff we see. So they both kind of have this kind of mysterious ending to their life. Uh, there's also a connection to these two guys at the end of the Old Testament, or at least the way our books are arranged. Uh, so we're in the book of Matthew, but if you were to go to the book right before that, it's the last book in the Old Testament. Uh, that's the book of Malachi. And Malachi ends... With this last three verses here in verse 4, it says, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I am going to send to you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. So even as the Old Testament comes to a close, there's this connection between Moses and Elijah, the, the law and the prophets, in returning the people's hearts to the Lord. So now we have this scene where these three guys are together, they're talking about something. Uh, but for me, uh, just a, a visualization of this to me that is actually kind of helpful to kind of think through this. As we've gone through the book of Matthew, we've seen that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. Some of those written by Moses, some of those written about and or by Elijah. But we look at him in kind of a too small of a way. We would look at it and go, man, Moses was a great man of God, a great prophet, and he wrote these amazing prophecies, which Jesus later walked in. Or Elijah was a great prophet, a great man of God. He wrote these prophecies, which Jesus later walked in. But that's kind of missing the first step. Moses wrote nothing under his own inspiration or his own mindset. He didn't come up with these things. Elijah wrote nothing of his own. These things were revealed to them in eternity past, right? These things were revealed to them by God the Father or maybe even God the Son. But God spoke to them, the Holy Spirit spoke to them that they should write these things. So God tells them to write prophecies that God the Son will walk in later in the Gospel of Matthew. And so it almost seems like in this moment, there's this transition now that's happening that the disciples are supposed to see that there's a transition between listening to the law, Moses, listening to the prophets in, representing Elijah, and now, as God's going to say, listening to his Son. There's going to be a transition there. So uh, think through this now with me in verse 4. Of course, they're having this great conversation that, the, that history has not recorded for us. Scripture doesn't tell us what they were talking about. Um, but Peter then, in the midst of this, says to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, and a one for Elijah, which uh, we don't know exactly what Peter was thinking with this. It could be that he was thinking tabernacles in the sense of setting up little uh, places of worship. Uh, it could also be that it was close to the Feast of Tabernacles. And so for the Jewish people, during the Feast of Tabernacles, they would build these little tents that they would live in during that time to commemorate the people of Israel living in tents as they wandered in the wilderness, as they were brought out of Egypt into the Promised Land. So he could be making a connection there. He could just be saying, this is the coolest sleepover ever. Let's all hang out and have a camping trip. Like, I don't know what he's saying, but it doesn't seem to be that important what he's saying because while he's still speaking, we hear this or we see this in verse 5, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now follow this through. Jesus is speaking with, the, with, the, with Moses and with Elijah, 
Peter begins to speak, and this voice from heaven, this shadow over, over, overgoes the mountain, and this voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. In other words, he interrupts Peter to say, pipe down, youngster. <laughs> You're going to miss it again. Now, there's actually a cool imagery here that's intended to connect us back to the Old Testament. Uh, when uh, the Moses was going up on the mountain to receive the law, a similar situation this, this mountain was overshadowed, and this voice came out of heaven and spoke to Moses. Now, the response of the people in the Old Testament was that they were terrified. In fact, they were so terrified, they said, we don't want to hear from God anymore, Moses. You go talk to God, and then you tell us what he said. They were so terrified by all of this. Well, we have a similar scenario here. When the disciples heard this in verse 6, they fell face down on the ground and were terrified. Which, by the way, is the proper response to who God is. I know for some of us that seems a little bit weird because we think of, of God as love and we think of He's so wonderful and He's so kind and He's so awesome. And so there should be no fear in that. But there truly is fear uh, because we don't have a full understanding of who God is. We, I don't believe that we can fully comprehend how great He is, how awesome He is, how powerful He is. We can catalog and put together all the things we know about God, and those things don't even scratch the surface of how great He is. And so in this moment, when that great God speaks and the disciples hear Him, that which they believed by faith, they're now hearing, and it terrifies them to the point where they just drop to the ground. That's how mighty and that's how awesome God is. Now, we can't always see that. We can't always understand that, but there are these moments in history where God shows up and the response of the people every time is just to hit the ground, to be terrified, and to be afraid of the God that they thought was this big, but they found out He was so much infinitely bigger. That they thought was this great, but they found out was so much greater than they ever imagined. And it would be terrifying to truly be in that circumstance and in that situation. So the disciples, now they fall on their face to the ground. They're trembling. They're terrified, right? And then Jesus comes over in verse 7, and he touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. And lifting their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. So you can kind of see the transition that's happened here. They have this great moment where they see Moses and Elijah with Jesus and they're talking. And then God says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And then all they see is Jesus. Now think about this from a Jewish perspective. The Old Testament law represented by Moses, the Old Testament prophets, that was everything to them. And now Jesus is superseding those things. He's not putting those things away. I don't want you to think that. But I'm just saying that the Old Testament law and the Old Testament prophets were just like a crack in the door to peek into the things of God. But now you have the man of God in front of you. In Jesus Christ, so much more than the Old Testament law or the prophets could have ever revealed. There's this transition where he now becomes the primary focus. Beyond Moses and beyond Elijah, beyond the Old Testament law and beyond the prophets, where their focus primarily is to listen to him, that they would see him as the focus of everything. Now, we're going to find that that's true for us in our life as well, that we need to, as believers, get better at listening to the things of Jesus Christ and trusting in those things in all the circumstances of our life. And we'll find, much like Peter found when he was walking on the water, when we take our attention away from God, away from the things of Jesus Christ, things begin to sink. We begin to have problems. We begin to become overwhelmed by our circumstances. So now this is God endorsing His Son as the one that we should be receiving at this point now all the attention. So they're working their way now down the mountain. It says in verse 9, as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them saying, tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came and they did not recognize him. 
but he did to but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. And the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. Now, again, just because of the weird way I see things, this to me is comical. They're coming down the mountain. The last thing they heard from God was, this is my beloved son, listen to him. So Jesus introduces a topic of conversation. I don't want you to tell anyone what just happened on that mountain until I raise from the dead. He's brought to you the topic that he wishes to discuss. It might lead to ask some questions. Number one, why don't you want people to know about this? And number two, what do you mean raised from the dead? What does that mean, Jesus? Is that where the disciples went? No. They go right back to Elijah. Moses and Jesus and Elijah on the mountain... And they've got questions not about Jesus, not about the topic he introduced, the resurrection from the dead, but instead they want to know about Elijah. So they ask him this question, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And so they had evidently read this Old Testament prophecy that we looked in the book of Malachi. There's actually another one there in Malachi chapter 3 that seems to be rather connected to that as well. He says in verse 1 of Malachi 3, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But these kind of Old Testament prophecies that Elijah would come before the Lord would come, well, we have this question being asked by them. Now, Jesus is going to answer the question. I'm going to look at that in a minute. But what I want you to see is bracketing the answer to the question. In verse 9, Jesus talking about his resurrection. And then in verse 12, Jesus ending by bringing the attention back to, so also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Because this is the message he's trying to bring to his disciples. He tried to bring it at the end of chapter 16. He was rebuked by Peter. They're coming down the mountain now, and he's almost being ignored by the disciples as he brings this up again, that he's going to raise from the dead, that he's going to suffer at their hands. But he does answer their question in the midst of this. He answers the question like this uh, in, in somewhat of a mysterious way. He said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. So that's future tense. But I say to you that Elijah already came, and they didn't recognize him but did to him whatever they wished. And it's at that point the disciples realized that Jesus was talking about John the Baptist, that John the Baptist came in the ministry of Elijah, preparing the way for the Messiah. And the way that he did that, the way that he made straight the paths, was to preach repentance. He preached to the the people of the nation of Israel that they needed to repent because the kingdom of God is at hand, because Jesus is on his way, the Messiah they've been waiting for. So all the people needed to be repenting so that they could prepare themselves to understand and to receive the things that Jesus was about to bring into the world. But of course, the people in large part rejected that. They didn't recognize that John the Baptist was coming in the ministry of Elijah. And because of that, uh, it says that they did to him whatever they wished. But then Jesus brings it right back to the topic he's trying to bring up with these guys, and that is that the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands, at the hands of the people. So as they, although understand what Jesus is saying about John the Baptist, it seems as if they're not quite getting what Jesus is trying to say in preparing them for his own death and resurrection. Now this is kind of an important thing that's going to happen. Like Jesus has drawn these people away from their families. These disciples are following him. They left their families and they left their jobs and they're following after Jesus at this point. And he's about to go die. And that's the kind of thing that could kind of ruin you, right? Like if you just surrendered everything to follow after this Messiah, this guy you think is the Savior of the universe, and he just dies? Man, you would think that this would be the kind of thing that could really kind of mess up your, your, your doctrine and your religion. So Jesus is trying to prepare them in advance. And like I said, it's going to be kind of over and over. In chapter 16, he tells them that, and Peter rebukes him. Chapter 17, here he tells them that, and it's almost as if they're just going to completely ignore him. They don't respond to it all. And that's why he's going to have to tell them again in Matthew 17. He's going to have to tell them again on his way to Jerusalem. He's going to have to tell them again the night before his crucifixion. And each time they're going to respond, but they're not going to respond great. 
to the point where even after he dies, they didn't set a countdown and say in three days late, three days from now, Jesus is going to be resurrected. Like you would think if they truly understood what he was saying about the resurrection, right? Like they would have been waiting outside of his tomb, like, see, like signs for Jesus, like, welcome back. Like that's what they would have done if they understood him, but they didn't quite understand it yet. It'll be revealed to them after the resurrection. They'll understand it fully. But at this point, they don't fully understand it. Jesus is just preparing their hearts for what he's about to do. That's that, that longer arc that's going on in the Gospel of Matthew. Beyond the things that we want to look at applicationally, this longer arc, Jesus is preparing his people, his disciples, for them to see his death and his resurrection that ultimately will pay the price for our sins, for the sins of the world, that is the gospel message that we hope for. So Jesus preparing them for that. Now when they uh, come down the mountain, they're going to find themselves in the middle of a mob, a little bit of a riot. There's been some problems at the bottom of the hill. Remember, three of the disciples up with him on a mountain. Nine of the disciples left to their own devices at the bottom of the mountain. And that's not going to go well. Uh, we'll look at it here in verse 14. When they came to the crowd, a man came up to Jesus, falling on his knees before him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and is very ill. For he often falls into the fire and often into the water. I brought him to your disciples and they could not cure him. And Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him and the demon came out of him and the boy was cured at once. Uh, then the disciples... Um, boy, I've lost my spot there. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, because of the littleness of your faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible to you. But this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. So at the bottom of the hill, while the great amazing moment of transfiguration is happening at the top of the mountain, at the bottom of the mountain, there's nine disciples left amongst the crowd of people. And this situation arises where somebody brings a son to their, his son to them to be healed, but the disciples are unable to do it. And what we'll pick up in the other gospels, particularly in Mark, is that this is quite a scene. They've got this huge crowd around them. They can't perform this miracle. They've got the scribes, the religious leaders, mocking them because they can't accomplish it. It's just kind of this horrible scene. And this poor father, this desperate father in the middle of this, is literally begging for anyone to do anything to help his son. If you can imagine this, Mark even tells us that this, this poor kid of his has been suffering since he was a young child. So we don't know how old he is now, but apparently this has gone on for years uh, what the father views it as, because he can't see everything that's going on spiritually, the father views it as his son is a lunatic. And he keeps throwing himself into the fire, and then he throws himself into the water, which is the proper order, fire first, then water, to put out the fire, right? But his father sees this, and Mark tells us that he also goes into convulsions, he foams at the mouth. I mean, he just looks at his son, he says, this, this kid's a lunatic, can anybody help me? And if you can imagine the desperation of a father of dealing with this for years seeking anybody to help him, anybody. And I imagine he took him to doctors, and I imagine he cried out to God. But then he hears that there's this group of people that are going around the wilderness, and they're healing people of diseases. And so he brings his son just desperate for something to happen, and the disciples can't heal him. And this desperate father now seeing Jesus come down to the mountain, it says he falls on his knees before him saying, Lord, have mercy. He begins to, to beg Jesus to have mercy. Now, Jesus' response, the verbal response, not going to seem so great. But the actual response is that Jesus is going to cure this kid. And we realize what the, the problem that the kid has is that he's, he's possessed by a demon. Now, maybe the people didn't necessarily see that in this circumstance, but Jesus did. He recognized what the real problem was, and so he's going to rebuke the demon. It's going to come out of the young boy, and the boy will be cured in an immediate fashion. But the whole scenario there, the setup for the father, has got to be miserable. Well, Jesus' words don't sound so nice. He says this, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. It sounds like Jesus is, is angry. 
He's specifically angry at the unbelieving, perverted generation. And it's just kind of a weird response, right? Like, that's not the way we would envision responding to this situation. It's not the way we would envision Jesus responding to this situation. I think in part he's actually responding to the, to the nine disciples who were unable to perform this miraculous thing here. And the reason is he calls it an unbelieving generation. And then later he's going to say that the reason they couldn't do this is because of the littleness of their faith. So that's why I believe, although he's saying this generation, this whole generation is unbelieving and perverted, I think the rebuke is really held for his disciples. Now, the disciples are a little bit uh, thrown off by this, and they want to know why it is they couldn't cast out this demon. Why could we not drive it out, it says in verse 19. So they take Jesus aside privately. They ask this question, why could we not drive it out? And then that's where Jesus will answer because of the littleness of your faith. And just to illustrate how little their faith was, he said, even if you had the faith of a mustard seed, you could move an entire mountain. So he's saying that their faith is so little, it's even littler than a mustard seed. That's how little their faith is. Well, it's kind of a weird thing to say because these guys have been driving out demons. They have been healing people. They've been doing this previously, but in this moment, they couldn't. And we can only kind of postulate or guess specifically what's happened here. Uh, But it seems like they were acting in faith before, but in this moment, for whatever reason, they're not acting in faith. Uh, let, me, let me put it to you in this way. So remember Peter walking on the water? Peter had great faith when he walked out of the water. But then he had a moment of lack of faith and he began to sink, right? Well, it's possible that these disciples got a little bit flustered when they at first tried to cast out the demon and it didn't come out. And now you've got the crowds and you've got the religious leaders mocking. You've got this horrible scene. You've got this desperate father begging them. And in this moment, all of a sudden, I'm like, I almost envision it like they start trying harder, but not believing harder. Like that's how I envision. That's probably how I would respond. Maybe I didn't say it loud enough. No, come out of him. Maybe I should bop him on the forehead. Come out of him, I say. Like, I can see them kind of getting worked up in this situation, but not actually getting more faithful, but getting more animated, because that's kind of the way we respond to things. That's the way we oftentimes respond to things. And I think there's a little hint in there in verse 19. They're asking the question, why could we not drive it out? Not, why did you not drive it out when we asked? I think maybe, potentially, And again, this is somewhat of a guess, but potentially they had gotten kind of used to this power of God working in them to the point where they almost felt like they were doing it. And it seems that they began to take their eyes off of the reality here. Now, we want to talk about this because it is important that we understand what he's talking about here on this this faith that can move mountains, this faith that makes anything possible. Nothing's impossible for you because of this faith. And I, I feel like I have to do this because uh, there are, are false doctrines that come from these types of things. So there are people out there that will look at this and say, I have the ability in God to claim whatever I want and it's going to happen. They have that name it, claim it mentality. And so they would actually view God as almost like a, a genie in a bottle or a slot machine that pays off every time they ask. That's kind of how they view it as if, if I say something and I believe it, God has to do it. They see this as some sort of contract between man and God. There's a couple of things I'd like to point out. The first thing is, Jesus is dealing with a specific set of disciples, not all disciples. He's talking to a specific set of disciples who in chapter 10, he had actually given the authority to cast out demons and to heal all kinds of disease. So this group here in verse 1 of chapter 10, Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. So yes, these disciples had the authority, had the ability to do this because it was granted to them by Jesus. But there's no uh, assertion that this would be true for all believers of all time, that every believer at every time has the ability to command demons to come out and has the ability to heal every kind of disease. I would say the easiest way to prove this out is he says, if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, you would move mountains. Well, which mountains got moved? 2,000 years of church history, which mountain got moved? You see, it just doesn't happen. 
And I know a lot of Christians, and we're pretty lazy. We would much rather move the mountain than walk over it, right? So you would think if this is what he was saying, if he was making this literal assertion here that every one of us could move mountains just in faith, that that would happen. But no, the reality is, uh, the way I would say it is, everything that God has asked you to do, by faith you can do, even if it seems impossible. That's the way I would state it so we can be a little clearer here. So how does that work out practically in our lives? Because some of us at different times have been desperate fathers crying out for God to heal or to help, to respond to our circumstances or our situations. And it's not always just in health things, but it could be in all kinds of things, relational things and financial things. How does that work in these circumstances? Where does faith play into this? Well, I think playing our faith always has to be balanced with trust in God to answer the way that He wants to answer. When we're learning to pray, we're told to pray in this way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Now, when we pray, we're often praying for our will to be done, right? God, would you answer this in the way that I would like you to answer it? That's how we pray. And from our worldly perspective, that's the exact right way to pray. Because it's what we can see, it's what we can understand. But the foundation of that has to be that we're praying for His will to be done because we believe His will is ultimately, whether we understand it or not, the better will, the better outcome for His kingdom, for His plan. And so we submit ourselves to that and then we pray and I would say we would continue to pray until we receive an answer. And he kind of links that there in verse 21. He says, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Now, I would just add this assumption to that, that maybe even the disciples had kind of gotten so active in ministry, but they stopped the very simple things of just regularly praying and seeking the things of God. That they were no longer kind of connected to the mission of God and the purpose of God. But there is that connection there. Now, uh, just as an aside... Verse 21 in my Bible is in brackets, uh, which uh, tells me that the translators of the New American Standard don't believe that verse was actually in the original manuscripts. But they put it there because some Bibles will have it, and because in the Gospel of Mark, Mark makes a very similar statement. So although it wasn't necessarily here in the Gospel of Matthew, Mark makes a similar statement that helps us understand that this is actually something Jesus said. It's just not something that Matthew himself reported. Mark reported it. And so uh, maybe somewhere along the line, somebody wrote that into uh, one of the the, uh, uh, copies of one of the original manuscripts that they had. So they kind of wrote that in there as a note. Hey, this is what Mark said. And then as they started copying this going forward, it kind of became connected to that, but it maybe wasn't likely there, but I still think it's something that Jesus actually said. So there's this disconnect. Now, so this is how I think of it then. If I'm in a situation where I want God to heal somebody, I'm going to just keep praying and praying and praying and praying and praying until he answers. If I want God to do something, I'm going to keep asking and asking and asking until he gives me an answer. Whatever that answer is, I'm going to trust him for that answer. I'll give you an example. I love examples where I'm foolish, and so here's a good one. Um, so we have a, a friend, uh, Sheila and I have a friend that as long as we've known her, she's had MS. Uh, and so we've been praying for her for, at this point, decades. Um, and I've just regularly kind of made this a point of prayer. Now up to this point, God's not healed her. But I've continued to pray. And I believe I'm going to continue to pray or have continued to pray because God hasn't given me an answer yet. Now here's the part where I look a little bit foolish. And that is... One day she asked me to pray for her, but it had nothing to do with her MS. It was something else. So I prayed for her in the thing that she asked me to pray for, and then I tacked on the thing about the MS at the end of it. And she said, Sean, stop praying for my healing. I'm like, what do you mean? And she says, I prayed for it for years until God told me he wasn't going to heal me. And I said, in my arrogance, well, he hasn't mentioned it to me yet, so I'm going to keep praying. (laughs) But that's the way I I see these things in Scripture. I see that it is our ability, our responsibility to bring every one of our desires before God in prayer, but we surrender Him to His will, and however He decides to answer it, we have to trust Him in those things. Uh, The greatest example, I think, is Paul with the uh, thorn in the flesh in, in 1 Corinthians. 
It says three times he begged God to take away the thorn in his flesh. Three times he begged God. Well, why did he stop after three times? Because God answered his prayer. Not by taking away the thorn in the flesh, but by saying to the Apostle Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. So he didn't heal him. He told him no. But see, that's the proper way to view our relationship with God. We're subordinate to him, not the other way around. He commands us, not the other way around. And I think it's a dangerous teaching that we see in the church where people have this belief that they can command God to do things. And if they tell God to do something in prayer, he has to respond because we have this verse here that we've taken out of context. We've rejected everything else in Scripture to hang on this one verse. So I would say whatever the difficulties are that you're crying out to God, whatever you're desperate for before God, continue to cry out for those things. But then submit yourself to the will of his answer, whatever that may be. And I think sometimes his answer is going to be yes, and sometimes his answer is going to be no. And sometimes I get a little depressed by how many times it's no. But I'm trusting in him. I'm believing in him and I'm hoping in him. So don't stop praying for the things that you're hoping for from God unless he's already given you the answer and then trust him in that answer. So uh, here we have now this scenario. He's just gone through this. Well, Jesus is going to go back to the thing he's still trying to tell them. In verse 22, it says, while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day And they were deeply grieved. And so here again, another time, the third time in a chapter and a half, Jesus has told his disciples, I'm going to die and I'm going to be raised again on the third day. And in this case, they respond, I think, a little bit better than in the other cases. Not probably 100% right yet, but they respond a little bit better. In this case now, hearing it a third time, they begin to be grieved by it. They're starting to recognize that they can't change this outcome. Even though Peter tried when he rebuked Jesus and said, Lord, may it never be. And even when they tried to ignore it at the beginning of the chapter, let's change the subject and talk about Elijah. I don't want to talk about that. But here, finally, they're grieved when they recognize that their Savior is going to die. But yet they're still not getting what I think is is the, the amazing point in this, is that Jesus is going to raise again. That's the powerful piece of this. That's the exciting point. So I still think they're missing the ultimate point. They're still not seeing how that connects to God's ultimate plan for his people. But at least now they're starting to recognize, as he said it three times, that this is exactly what's going to happen. And then we finish up with this uh, story that only appears in the Gospel of Matthew. It's about uh, uh, paying taxes or paying a temple tax uh, as as they talk about it here. And so... Uh, I think it's interesting only in the fact that Matthew is a tax collector and Matthew's the only one that shares this. And so for him, he's like, ooh, we're talking about taxes. This is an exciting teaching. And then the other disciples who wrote Gospels were like, oh, taxes. And so they don't mention this story as much, but I think it's an exciting story nonetheless. Verse 24, uh, when they came to Capernaum, those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? And he said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs and poll tax from their sons or from strangers? When Peter said from strangers, Jesus said to him, then the sons are exempt. However, so that we do not offend them, go to the sea and throw in a hook. Take the first fish that comes up. When you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for you and me. And so this is uh, uh, sometimes known as the temple tax, but it was just a tax that everybody paid and it kind of helped pay uh, for maintenance and things on the temple. Uh, I don't believe it's necessarily a a tax that you see in the Old Testament law. There were times where they did things like this for uh, building of the temple, but this doesn't necessarily, in my mind anyway, seem to connect to that. Uh, But what's interesting in this uh, is the question is asked of of Peter, does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? And Peter answers 
But he doesn't do the thing that he probably should have done, which is ask Jesus, hey, how should I answer this question? He just, because he's Peter, he just, he just kind of answers. What's also interesting to me, and only to me probably, nobody else would find this interesting, but I don't understand his answer. Because the question is, does your teacher not pay? To which Peter responds, yes. Yes, he does not pay or yes, he does pay? I'm still not sure what his answer is, but he answers here, yes. I wish I could look at the other gospels and they would tell me, but none of the other gospels cover this. So does your teacher not pay? Yes, he does not pay or yes, he does pay. I'm still not entirely clear. But anyway, uh, just a side note. There are things I don't understand about Scripture. That's one of them. I don't know if he says he's yes, he's paying or not. I just know that he probably should have asked Jesus, how should I answer this question? So Jesus then brings it up. When they get alone, apparently, they came into the house. When he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? And he sets up this little example. He says, from whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax? From their sons or from strangers. So the king is going to tax people. Is he going to tax his own children or people he doesn't know? Well, Simon says, well, obviously people he doesn't know, to which Jesus responds, then the sons are exempt, which is basically Jesus' way of saying, I'm exempt from paying taxes for the temple because I am the son of the king, or as it said at the beginning of the chapter, the beloved son with whom I am well pleased, the beloved son of God. So Jesus is actually exempt from paying this tax because he's God's son. He doesn't have to pay this tax. But then he adds, however, so that we do not offend them, we'll pay the tax, which I think is just one of those neat lines that Jesus always seems to know right where to draw that line, when it's okay to offend people and when it's not okay to offend people. But in this circumstance, he decided not to offend them, chose not to. Uh, But what's really interesting about this, what's really cool about this is the way he pays the tax. So it's two drachma taxes, about two days wages. So two days for Jesus, two days for Peter. I don't know what the other uh, 11 disciples are doing. I don't know if they're on their own. Get your own taxes, B-Y-O-T, bring your own taxes or something like that. I'm not sure what the situation is, but Jesus is going to deal with this for Simon and himself, but he does it in a holy, miraculous way, in a, in, a, in a way that nobody else would do this, which again just speaks to the power and the amazingness of who Jesus is. He tells Peter, I want you to go down to the sea, throw in a hook, And the first fish that comes up, look in his mouth, there's going to be a shekel in there, and I want you to take that shekel, and I want you to go pay this tax for me. Now, I don't know how anybody else envisions this, but I mean, for for some people, they might look at this and say, well, this is no big deal. Jesus is just like, you know, some sort of David Copperfield magician type situation, just whatever that fish that comes out, Jesus miraculously makes a shekel appear in his mouth. But for me, there's a whole backstory to this. Like, this is like Jesus is God. He knows everything. And so he actually knows that there's some fishermen along the way throughout history at some point whose boat capsized and his shekels fell out of his pocket and they're laying at the bottom of the sea. And so Jesus, like Aquaman, communicates with one of the fishes and says, hey, Harry the fish, would you go get that shekel off the bottom of the sea for me and bring it up to Peter? When you see his hook, just bite onto it. He'll pull you right out of the water and spit that shekel right out to him because we need that right now. That's how I see Jesus, like that kind of like powerful and in control of everything. Like he just, he sees and does everything. And what's cool about the fish is it becomes a holy mackerel in that moment because it's working for Jesus. So that's kind of exciting. The jokes are free, just so you know, you don't have to pay for those. But Jesus miraculously provides even this, this one shekel in this very small way. Now, when we take this whole chapter and we try to put it together into some sort of semblance, there's obviously those kind of two tracks. Track number one, Jesus is preparing his disciples for his death and for his resurrection, which for them was wholly confusing. It makes total sense to us because we've read the end of the book. We know how it ends. But for them, this is new information. They're completely confused by all of this. And so it it makes sense that this is hard for them to grasp. I think it would be hard for any of us living in the exact same circumstances as then. But I also see this thread of the sun all throughout this chapter. It starts out with God saying, 
This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And then we watch the beloved son of God heal the lunatic son of a desperate man. And I see in that just a picture of God anyway. Uh, Just understand the world from God's perspective. He looks down at the earth. He sees all of his people, all of his creation. He says, what's wrong with these lunatics? And he desperately wants to save us from our lunacy, from our sin, from our following after our own devices. And so he provides a way of salvation in sending his own son. And then we see his son, Jesus Christ, here as well, the son of the king exempt from the taxes, but having miraculous control over even the natural world. That's the Jesus that we worship. That's the Jesus we pray in his name. And that's the Jesus that we need to be listening to. The beloved son of God who came to save us from our lunacy and has the power to do anything that he wants to. That's the Jesus we pray to. Father, we thank you so much for this glimpse of your son, Jesus Christ. And I do pray, even in the midst of of maybe my awkward storytelling, but uh, in the midst of all of this, uh, that we will find a greater understanding of who you are, who your son, Jesus Christ is, and that we will get better at listening to him in all the circumstances and situations in our life, that we would get better at believing that you can intervene in even the largest or smallest portions of our life, and that we would trust you in whatever way you intervene. It's the right way at the right time for the advancement of your kingdom. Father, we thank you and we love you for caring about us, for trusting in us to be the gospel of light to this generation. Again, Lord, I would pray, help us to believe and to trust in the words of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we would listen to him and do the things he asks us to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's